0: Well, if you're not already there, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. And tonight's passage, as we're going to see, is really a fitting way to conclude our semester in Philippians. This semester, the focus of our teaching times, both in, in Sunday morning, the Sunday morning hour, and in the uh, Thursday night time, has been on growth, making progress in the Christian life. We've looked at the Growing Up series. we treated that systematically on Sunday mornings. Uh, we've looked at it topically. And then on Thursday nights, as we've gone through Philippians, this theme has come up again and again in our exposition because it's really Paul's chief concern for, for the church, and this church in Philippi in particular. And tonight's passage, as we're going to see, is, uh, is, like I said, very fitting to end on because it's about our growth. And when it comes to growth, one of the most common questions that swirl around this topic is, who is responsible for it? Who's responsible? Meaning, who does the growing? Do we eagerly pursue it? Or is that some kind of legalism? Or it, are we striving in our own efforts? If I'm involved in my sanctification then how much am I involved? How much is God involved? Does God do it all? Should we wait on Him or seek it out ourselves? Is our only job to rest and to try to stop striving and let Him do the changing? Or does He give us all the resources and then expect us to kind of grow ourselves? To boil it all down, you could ask, should we focus on human effort in the growth process? Or should we focus on divine empowerment in the growth process? Human effort, divine empowerment. Well, historically, Christians have often found themselves trending toward one of two kind of unbiblical extremes. The left ditch and the right ditch, we might say, of sanctification... On the left side of the road, over in that ditch, would be uh, sort of the exclusive emphasis on human effort. Okay? The exclusive emphasis on human effort. And this has been known in different forms, different terms, but pietism would be a historical term for this. Again, painting with pretty broad strokes here. And the emphasis in that movement was on human effort. The human effort that was required to live a godly life. And today, this might look like the person who is zealous to obey the Lord. Good thing. They've got their plan together. They're working that plan. Another good thing. But these folks typically aren't praying much, since they're emphasizing their own efforts. and They they trend toward being judgmental of others. Judgmental of those slackers, you know, who they're not exerting as much effort as them. They often view themselves as more mature than they really are, or we could say less sinful than they actually are. This is the person that emphasizes, puts all the eggs in kind of the human effort basket, or is, to keep with our metaphors, in that, that left ditch. But sometimes the person who emphasizes human effort starts realizing that, surprise, surprise, their efforts aren't working, Right? You've been that person in in the past. You kind of know what I'm talking about. Especially as they start to see how insidious and deceptive their own hearts can be. And they see that over and against how high God's standards are. When they hear something like, like we'll see next semester, do everything without grumbling or disputing. You know, no complaining at all, ever. Chapter 2, verse 14, Philippians. And they hear something like that. They think, what? Like, how can I possibly do that? I'm trying so hard, but I can't seem to measure up. When can I ever rest, knowing that I'm doing enough? Discouragement sets in, then despondency, then maybe even depression. And many times, this triggers a reaction to the other extreme on the spectrum, the other ditch, the right ditch, if you will. And this is the extreme that emphasizes that our growth is God's work and not ours. The extreme that emphasizes that growth is God's work and not our work. And historically, this has been known as quietism. So if you have pietism on the one hand, you have quietism on the other. Emphasizing God's work to the exclusion of our work. So, let's say you're the, the pietist. You're discouraged because if you're uh, you're not changing the way that you think you ought to be changing, and some well-meaning Christian here's the plight of here's your plight, and they say, "Oh, brother, listen, you just need to rest. Your problem is that you think it's on you. What you need to do is just stop striving and rest in God. He loves you and He will grow you. Just let Him do all the work." Now, there's a lot of truth in that, right? And to the weary soul, that sounds pretty good. But often lying under the surface of a statement like that is a minimization of human effort. Or an outright rejection of it altogether. You, know, you don't do the work. God's, God's got to do it. And so then the pietist becomes a quietist, Right? Uh, Someone who expects God to do all the work in transformation. And then this kind of person thinks that any effort in the Christian life, any effort beyond simply surrendering to Jesus, is some form of legalism. It's off base. It's not right. And usually they're not as concerned about their sin, at least not initially, because they think God's going to take care of it. It's God's responsibility to change them, and, and they're waiting on Him to initiate the extent of the fight of their sin would be, you know, I'm praying about that. You know, hey, are you trying to grow here? I, yeah, I'm, I'm praying about it. Or I'm just, I'm just trying to rest in God. I'm trying to surrender to Him. But eventually, when this prayer or surrender doesn't seem to work, they too can grow discouraged, despondent, and de- depressed. God doesn't seem to be answering their prayers and they find that they're not making as much progress as they had hoped in this sort of let go and let God approach. So if I was listening to a sermon on this by one of our professors in TES, and he, I've heard the let go, let God of sort of the quietest approach, but he, he, he framed another one of, the, of the, uh, the other approach. He said, let's go and forget God, <laughs> right? So you've got the let go and let God and let's go and forget God. Uh, I thought that was memorable, helpful. And I think at times we, we drift toward one of these extremes. Maybe not all out, right? We, not, we might not find ourselves in the ditch, but we're kind of on the shoulder, you know, driving around uh, right, right before the ditch in, in one or the other of these, toward one or the other of these extremes. But when we turn to Scripture, the biblical authors keep us out of the ditches, and they keep us on the scriptural path of sanctification, as we're going to see tonight, in arguably one of the most succinct and helpful passages on this theme, Paul fully acknowledges both of these realities. On the one hand, he commands that we exert effort in the growth process. And yet, he also acknowledges that from start to finish, God is the one energizing, empowering our obedience. In fact, according to Paul, we are to exert effort in our growth precisely because God is behind it. We're to strive because God is energizing the striving. We are to labor because God is empowering the labor. Look with me in Philippians 2, in verse 12. Paul's just come off this. Remember, in this whole passage, Paul's aim is to to emphasize our obedience to Christ. So he's just given Jesus as an example. We looked at that last time. And now verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, here's the command, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Human responsibility, right? Right? For, here's the reason, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's the divine empowerment. So, clearly in Paul's mind, both are absolutely crucial. We strive in working out our salvation because God is working in us, he says. Human effort, divine empowerment, they work together for our transformation. Or we could say it like this. We are strengthened by God to strive for growth. It's the title of our message. We're strengthened by God to strive for growth. We are empowered by God to exert effort in our growth. And it's not just here in this text that we see human effort and divine empowerment together, this sort of, quote-unquote, tension in our minds. Okay. Listen to some of the other ways Paul describes it. I'll, I've got some text up here for you, just to kind of get us going here. In our own letter here, next semester, we'll look at this. Philippians 4.13. All right, listen for the, well, I guess I'll put it in brackets for you. I can do all things. Okay, there's the human effort. Through him who strengthens me. Divine empowerment. See that? Human effort. I can do all things. I, Paul can. Him, he can do them. But How? through him who's strengthening me. There's a divine empowerment happening underneath his efforts and energizing his efforts. Okay? Colossians one twenty nine. In the previous verse, in verse 28, he's talked about how he is, he's laboring to present people mature in Christ, a lot of ministry effort, preaching, teaching, warning, um, doing all these things. And he says, for this I toil to, to present the church mature. For this I toil, struggling. So there's a human effort, toiling, struggling. Paul's doing that, Right? How's he doing it? With all his energy, that's God's energy, that he powerfully works within me. So again, divine empowerment, human responsibility. Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit, so it's reversed now, we got the divine empowerment up front, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, human effort, you will live. So the Spirit's energizing it, but who's putting it to death? We are. Right? So humans. Human. Human responsibility or human effort. So I, got, I think I got one more up here, too. Okay? Paul says, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. So there's some human effort. Paul's laboring. He's talking, he's comparing himself <laughs> he's comparing himself to the other apostles. And he's saying he labored more than they did. So he worked harder at his apostolic commission than they did. A lot, of, a lot of Paul's human effort. Yet not I, he says, but the grace of God within me. Divine empowerment. So my point here is these, these twin truths clearly belong together. It's not just in this one text. This is throughout the Bible. These twin truths belong together when it comes to how we approach Growth, change, sanctification. If we're going to grow, we have to exert effort, but that effort is fueled by the confident hope that God is powerfully at work within us. It's the hope that inspires our efforts. It's the hope that makes our efforts fruitful, productive, and transformative. So here in our text tonight, Paul gives us yet another exhortation to pursue that growth. We've been seeing it throughout this passage. Another exhortation to pursue growth, to pursue obedience, or what he describes as a working out of our salvation. And as we've seen, the Philippians need this this exhortation, this gentle, loving exhortation, Because they had let a pattern of disobedience kind of take root in their church. Yodia and Syntyche, two women, were in conflict. And apparently that conflict had infected the church body in Philippi. And they were grumbling and disputing amongst themselves. He's going to go on and and say in verse 14, right here in the same paragraph, do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's one practical way you're going to work out your salvation. uh, By stopping the infighting. It's happening right now between these two women and the groups that they represent. And the grumbling and arguing had taken this congregation's eyes off of Christ, taken their eyes off heaven, off of advancing the gospel in Philippi. And with Paul in prison, their father in the faith, he was away from them. They were tempted to let this disunity fester or to kind of coast in their sanctification, their level of obedience, and not really exert much effort in dealing with what would become an awkward situation. Right? And while there may not be the same level of conflict here in Boundless, uh, at least I'm not aware of it, um, we've all been tempted to ignore sin in our lives and our relationships, to kind of put our, our growth on you know in, in cruise control mode. We're tempted to live comfortably with the, with the sin patterns in our lives, even though they're making us less effective for the mission of Christ. And so tonight I want us to turn our attention back to Philippians 2 and look a little more carefully at this command that Paul gives us here to work out our salvation. And we can make at least four observations about the command to, to work out our salvation. That's the, that's the central thrust Paul's exhorting them here to, to do this to, in this command but there's a lot of things that are kind of hanging off this command that are, are helpful to look at. So we're going to just make some observations about it. And the first one, we can say it like this. This command is given from a heart of love. The command is given from a heart of love. It's, it's, Paul's giving them this command, but it's it's born out of his love for them. So he says here, Verse 12, he says, therefore, don't miss this, my beloved. And It is the main command, work out your salvation. So he, ad- he addresses them here as his, his beloved. So we can say it's given from a heart of love. This command is issued from, a, from a warmth. Now, if you remember where we've been, Paul's been coming back down to earth from his lofty description of the humble example of Christ, back in chapter, the earlier verses of chapter 2. And he's motivating those Philippians there to adopt that same humble mindset and this obedient lifestyle that that Jesus exemplified. But as he begins to introduce this command, Paul gets their attention on the front end of the command. He doesn't always do this when he's introducing something, but he does here. So do you see that? He, He calls them, he tenderly calls them his beloved. Paul wants this church to remember that he loves them. And what he's about to tell them comes from that heart of love. And part of this is he wants them to see and, and, and realize that, that he lovingly remembers and affirms their past obedience. Okay? So even though they've let some, some disunity kind of take, take root and been argumentative, it's not always been the case. Paul remembers their past obedience. He's not forgotten about that. And he loves them like a good and faithful spiritual father Paul's endeared to this church and all that he commands them in in a minute is is for their good. And it's it's also worth remembering that Paul's love for the congregation is really an expression of Christ's love for the congregation. You remember back in chapter 1 that Paul said he yearns for this church with the affection of Christ Jesus. Remember that? So it's not Paul's own affection. It's Paul's sort of the conduit of the very tender affection of Christ for this church. His affection is simply an expression of Christ's affection running through him. So, for us, when it comes to working out our salvation, when it comes to pursuing the commands of Christ, we've got to remember that these commands, even if they're difficult, are given to us from a heart of love. We might be tempted to think of, of Paul or, or Christ that stands behind him inspiring Paul. You know? We might be tempted to think of them as just dishing out these difficult commands to us, commands that seem unrealistic. And since he, he, Paul reflects Jesus, we might get the picture that Jesus is sort of harsh, right? Just kind of dishing these commands out. But Paul undercuts that here. He undercuts it by reminding us that the church is dearly cherished, dearly loved. And all that's coming to the church is motivated by love. So if your heart is tempted to think that the commands, when you read a command in Scripture or you're you're faced with these things, and your heart seems to think, wow, this this is hard, you know. Remember the heart that stands behind the command. Remember the smiling, glowing face of Paul who wants your best and your flourishing. Remember his Christ who gave himself to the greatest extent for you in love. It's this person who is issuing the good command for us to be obedient. The command is not a restraint from from something that's good for us or would be beneficial to us. This Christ gave Himself for the greatest extent for us, and it's this one who's issuing the command. It's for our ultimate good. It's for our ultimate joy. The path of obedience may be the hardest path, but it is the good life. It's the most fulfilling and fruitful, the most meaningful life that we could pursue. And Paul loves this church. And he has her greatest good in mind in this command. And I'm spelling this out because it's so easy to be tempted to think that God is holding out on you. That there's some sin that's going to be beneficial for you. And if you could just do that thing, then your life's going to be better for it. And that's just a lie. That is an absolute lie. God is the most generous, gracious, loving being. And he has our good in mind in his commands. We're not missing out. So the command to work out our salvation is given from a heart of love. That's very clear on the outset. And that's, that's a, uh, we need to make that observation as we're moving in here. But next, second, this, this command is pursued with zeal and reverence. Or it's to be pursued with this zeal and and reverence. In other words, Paul cares how we obey. He says it needs to be zealous and reverent. All right, where, is it, where, where am I getting that from? He says here in verse 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, here it is, so now, not only as in my presence or as in my coming to you, but much more in my absence, there's the zeal, work out your own salvation, and here it is, the, the reverence, with fear and trembling. So Paul tells us here how we should approach obedience. Not just that we should obey, but how we should approach it. And he says we should pursue it with both increasing zeal and with reverence. So let's look at how he makes this point. Notice initially that he says he wants their zeal to increase. He says he wants them to obey not just when he's with them, but even more... In his absence. What Paul's saying is that he doesn't want their motivation to obey to be contingent on whether he's with them or not. In fact, he goes even further and says he wants them to be zealous to obey even more in his absence. In other words, he wants them to be growing in zeal to obey even more when he's gone, which, like he is now, he's in prison, he's not with him. Now, that's interesting because you'd almost think it would work in reverse. Right, Paul's presence would serve as a greater motivation to deal with the conflict and move forward. You know, every parent don't make me come down there. You know, to their child that's acted up in the basement. Uh, Why? Because the presence motivates obedience. So, you know, or maybe all of you non-parents out there, which is like 98% of you, um, maybe it's like the boss that shows up at the restaurant. You know, and you're working there, and you're the employee, and all the employees, what do they do? They they shape up, they sweep the trash, they start being extra nice to the customers. Why? Because boss is there, right? So presence motivates obedience, especially when it's, you know, father figure, superior. And sometimes we feel the same way in the church. When a spiritual mentor is in the picture, we get incentivized to obey, right? But when they're not, or we know we're not going to meet with them that, that week or the next for the next few weeks, or you might be going home for, say, winter break, There's maybe less incentive in your mind to obey. There might be more incentive to slack off in disobedience. But Paul here is saying he wants the opposite to be true. Their zeal to obey, he says, should increase even more in his absence. Now, there's an interesting answer for why this is. And I'll just kind of give it to you bit by bit here. The very next clause gives us some insight. Now, full disclosure here, our English versions, what comes next is the command, right? He says, I I want you to obey much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But that work out your own salvation actually isn't next in the Greek text, okay? After Paul says he wants them to obey, um, or actually... Yeah, after he says he wants them to obey much more in his absence, he says, with fear and trembling. So the fear and trembling is actually in front of the command to obey in the Greek text. So it sounds like this. You know, not only is it my presence, but much more in my absence. With fear and trembling, work out your salvation. Make sense? The phrase fear and trembling kind of inserted there, or not inserted, but it's, it's, it's before the command. Now, okay, big deal. Why, why are you bringing that out? it's interesting because now not only is he saying we should be all the more zealous to obey, but he's saying we should obey with fear and trembling or with reverence. Now that's also interesting because the phrase fear and trembling, if you kind of trace that out in the Bible, you're going to see that this is a typical human response. Get this in the presence of God Almighty. It, it can be neg- a negative response, like the terrifying fear of judgment. Or it can be a positive, holy fear, a deep reverence and respect, a sense of awe. So you could write down Psalm 211. You'll see both of these terms come up there. And it's interestingly paired with joy in that text. But my point here is the unifying feature in most of these occurrences of of fear and trembling, not all of them, but most of them, the unifying feature is the presence of God. So let's bring all this together. Paul's saying the Philippians should obey with more zeal in his absence And they should obey with fear and trembling. Why? Because he tells them in verse 13. For it is God who is working in, or we could translate it, among you. Someone far greater than Paul is with the Philippians. Always. Someone far greater than Paul or your pastors, is with you, with us, tonight and always. He's a great king to whom every knee will bow. And He indwells the church through His Spirit, and that is God Almighty. God, not Paul, is the One who is powerfully at work in their midst corporately through His Spirit and even in them individually. And Paul wants them to see this because he knows if they latch hold of the presence of God, that they are the temple of God, that this will fuel their obedience and zeal and reverence with or without Him. This means then that the presence of God among us, this realization, should give us great zeal and reverence as we obey. You see, Paul knows that if the Philippians really believe that God's among them, they will be more powerfully motivated to obey even in His absence. And for us, if we really believe that the Holy God is among us and in us, we will take obedience seriously. there will be increasing zeal in our hearts to get after putting sin to death and living for His mission. And if we're not zealous, then it shows that what we really think about God's presence, we don't value it that much, right? If we're indifferent Toward our growth, if we yawn at the commands of the king, it reveals we really do not understand that we are trifling with a holy God in our midst. And it may reveal that we do not know Him at all. If the Philippians only got it together when the apostle came to visit, then it would show that they missed the main point. That God, God is with them. God Himself is among them. But something else would also happen when we realize that God's with us and working in us. We wouldn't just get zealous. We would also be reverent. We would view obedience to the King, get this, as a profound privilege. Or as Paul says here, with fear and trembling, we would approach Him with fear and trembling. We would be in awe that God is working to conform us to Jesus. And that we, rebels, dead in transgressions and sins, once, now have the ability, experience, privilege to pursue the transformation here and now that was promised to the saints of old and now being realized and in through Christ in His church. We're tempted to approach obedience as a drudgery, though. As something we're just supposed to do. I've just got to read my Bible. I've just got to pray. You know, I'm supposed to love and forgive. I've just got to do this. Just grind it out. And we miss the glorious privilege of it. That we're living in the final days. We have the God-Spirit spirit In us, we're the eschatological temple. We have ability to change, to offer that to the world. We forget that He, the Holy God, hears our every word we pray to Him. We have that privilege that we live continually in His presence, that we are pleasing in His sight through His Son. And so we slip into triteness in our prayers. We don't maximize our lives because we forget these things. But Paul here says that we will obey with reverence when we remember that God is among us. In favor through Christ. So it's clear that, that Paul wants us to pursue this command with zeal and reverence. But then that raises another question. Like, what exactly are we pursuing? Like, what does this command mean um, to work out our salvation? We've been calling it obedience. But what exactly is Paul getting at with this command? Well, I think we could say it like this. We'll call it a third observation about the command. And, uh, sorry, had some subpoints there. Zeal and reverence. Okay? Here's the third observation. It involves actualizing what we've already been given. It involves actualizing what we've already been given. That's the essence of the command. What he's saying work out your own salvation. Now, I realize the way I've worded this might sound a little uh, confusing, um, not as intuitive, maybe. uh, But hang with me, all right? Paul is, in essence, calling us to obey. That's the, basic of this, that's the basic thrust of what he's saying here. To work out your own salvation. But the way he says it here is interesting. Okay, He calls us to work out our salvation. Which sometimes throws people as they read this verse. Because it almost sounds like Paul's calling us to work for our salvation as though our obedience earns our salvation in some sense, right? But that's not what he says, actually. He calls us to work it out. In other words, he's calling on us to work hard in living out our salvation. That's the idea of working it out. When we came to Christ, we're saved through faith. And now, because we're saved, we are working out its implications in our obedience, in our daily lives. Or we could say it differently. Being saved doesn't just come with a new destiny, heaven. It also comes with a new way of living, heaven's ethics. So Paul's calling us to actualize in real time, right now, in this, in this life, what we've already been given. We're already saved and we're, gonna, we're, we're going to be saved, right? When, when Christ returns, he's going to deliver us. But he's calling us, we get to experience it now. We get to to bring about some of the characteristics of it now in our lives. So that's the idea. We actualize this salvation as we learn to live like someone who has been saved. The saved lifestyle, so to speak. The obedient lifestyle. But the point is that in obedience, we're simply pursuing what God has already given to us. To change the metaphor, like we've, we've seen in Ephesians 4... Christ has already given us his wardrobe, the new new self, right? We just need to put those clothes on. We need need to learn to put them on and, and live like what we already are, what Christ has already given us via his death and resurrection for us. Now, as we step back and we ask our original question, who's responsible for growth, God or us, Well, in one sense, we see that we are clearly commanded to pursue it. You see that? It's a command. It would make no sense for Paul to command us to do something that we're not supposed to do. And he didn't just say pursue it, but the verb he used, work out, is is to pursue it hard. To literally work or labor at it. The idea of work out. And to work at it, not just with the verb to work out, but to work at it with zeal and reverence. So in other words, human effort is required if, we're, if growth is going to happen. And if we don't realize this, then we're going to fall off the ditch, into that ditch thinking that our effort's not required or it's minimally required and that God just does the rest kind of magically. Then we'll be easily discouraged when growth is hard. See the connection? If you don't realize that your strenuous effort is involved, then when it gets hard, you're going to be discouraged. You're going to want to throw in the towel. We're going to be tempted to think something's like way wrong if you have to fight for something, if you have to put something to death, if you have to exert effort or act contrary to what you feel. But that's all involved in working hard, isn't it? this will lead to this, this view that, that I don't really need to work very hard at it. This, this is going to lead to stunted growth. It will lead to a discouraged life and an inflamed conscience. That's not what you want. But when this does set in that, that, that Christ expects you to work hard at sanctification, then it becomes, in kind of counterintuitive, like super encouraging. Now, why is that? Because Paul calls us to take responsibility for our lives in this command, to get after pursuing God's means of growth. There's something for us to do, in other words. We're not kind of waiting on God to do something for us in one sense. We're going to see that Paul's going to blow our minds in the next <laughs> the next verse or the next yeah, the next verse. But there's something for us to do. It will be strenuous and will often feel like work. But the work is good. All right. So, what does that look like in, in kind of real time in this context? So, Paul is going to go, on. we're not going to talk about it tonight. I just want to show you. This is sort of a generic command. He doesn't get specific in this verse, but then he does in verse fourteen, and I think he's fleshing this out. He says, "Do all things without grumbling or disputing." So that's what that's what this looks like to working work out your salvation is to to not complain and dispute and get in arguments with each other because you're self-important and you think you're something and you're nothing. Like, don't, don't, don't do that. Don't live that way. That would be working out your salvation. Again, another command down in verse 18. Likewise, you should, you should be glad and rejoice with me. That's another command in this paragraph that kind of ends the paragraph. And it's another, another fleshing out of what this salvation working out your salvation looks like in real time. It looks like making conscious decisions to rejoice in the midst of difficulties and, and ministry, in particular, ministry difficulties, because you know, you know truth, and, and it's it's the, the rejoicing life. So it's kind of two sides of the same point. Not not complaining and disputing, but a life of rejoicing. So that's just in this one context, some practical expressions of this what this command looks like. So my point here is just to show you that we're clearly responsible for our growth. That's evident and obvious. But Paul does not stop here. He goes on, and that leads us to our fourth and final, and possibly most important, certainly the most encouraging observation about this command. And it's this. This command to work out our salvation is motivated by the empowering work of God. It's motivated by the empowering work of God. So look with me here. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So Paul wraps up this command by describing our great motivation to work hard in sanctification. And the motivation is this. God is continuously working in us and among us as a church, in us individually, among us as a church, transforming our desires and enabling our actions to carry out His good purposes. So let's look at this in a little more detail. Okay, First, I want you to notice that this verse shows us that God plays a part in our sanctification too, not just us. Okay? It's it's the other the other side of this this equation. Paul says here that God, not just that he works, but he's always working. He's always energizing. The verb is pre, a present tense participle, and it could be we could say it. Just, we could flesh it out a little bit like this: For God is the one who is continually working in you, meaning he never stops. He's always taking everything and lovingly working it toward your conformity to His Son. Romans 8.28 Even when you slack off, even when you're deceived in sin, He's got a purpose in that. Even when you've blown it, you can't toward God's purposes, He is still working in you. This is the great hope of the believer. It's the great motivation for our pursuit of growth. It's the only sustaining hope we have to stay at It's that God is underneath it. But notice, second, that this verse doesn't just show us God's part in our sanctification. It does. But it clarifies the relationship between God's role and our role see that? It clarifies the relationship. Now, how, you say? Well, a couple ways. That little word for. Do You see it? Paul says we work hard to grow for because God is working. Because. Why do we work? Why do we work? We're only enabled to work because something else is happening. Because God's underwriting our efforts. In other words, our growth is guaranteed when we exert effort. Because God is working in it. He is empowering it. He's making it effective and fruitful. Our efforts cannot fail ultimately. And that motivates the effort. So just think about that. The most powerful being in the universe is beside you, promises to meet you with His power. When you step out in faith. He's freed you from sin's dominion, and He now dwells within you through His Spirit. Now that is motivating to get after it. So he kind of clarifies the relationship between our work, God's work, in that way, with that word for. You know, we, we work because, ultimately, God's underneath it. He's working. But there's another way that Paul clarifies the relationship between God's role and our role. And it's with the scope of God's working. In other words, God's empowerment is behind all of our obedience. He motivates it and he carries it through. Notice what Paul says. God is working in us to what? Two things to will and work. Is that right? Yes, to will and to work. To will and work for his good pleasure. So what does that mean? All right, to will. God is working in us profoundly and mysteriously at the desire level. It's this verb. Willing, desiring, wanting. And this Working in us, this profound, mysterious, desire-shifting work began at our conversion. Before we were saved, we had no real desire to obey God. Ephesians 2. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. Our desires were fleshly, self-centered. We want to be God. We don't want to submit to Him. We might pretended that we did or kind of built a facade that we did at one point, but we really cared about ourselves. We viewed God as a killjoy. We viewed Him as a threat to our happiness. We viewed sin as a real joy, even though sin would kill us. But when God made us alive, He implanted within us new desires. Nothing else can explain the shift, can it? We once loved sin, but now we hate it. Because we see the truthfulness of what's behind it. We once hated God, but now we love Him. We are endeared to Him. He changed our heart of stone and he gave us a heart of flesh he made us alive he made us receptive to him in other words he gave us the will he gave us the want to to obey him that's what conversion is but the encouraging thing paul says here is that it doesn't stop at conversion god is continually working behind the scenes to shape our desires, to incline our hearts to his ways. The psalmist knew that God worked at this level. And that's why they prayed that he would listen to this, incline their hearts to his ways. Psalm 119:36, incline our hearts toward obedience. was the prayer. This means that if you desire to obey today, those desires came ultimately from God Himself as a gift. And that's an evidence of Philippians 1.6, that He has begun a work in you. And it's an evidence that He will see that work to completion. And this also gives us confidence, this gives us hope, that God will continue to shape our desires in the future. Not just in the past, that's happened in the past, but He will continue to shape our desires in, in the future as we continue to obey Him because this is a progressive work that God has ordained to do. It doesn't happen all at once. So that should be greatly encouraging. For those of you who get duped into sin, you still desire it at some level that God God is fundamentally committed to you to be shaping those desires into the future as you come and learn to obey Him. That is very, very encouraging and motivating for us to get after it now. But Paul goes on, God doesn't just influence our will at the desire level, but He also makes sure that we carry out those desires for righteousness in acts of obedience. He says God is working in us God is working in us to work for his good pleasure. Paul's talking about our deeds. He's talking about our outward acts of obedience, our acts of love, like reconciling between Yodi and Syntyche. Like, Paul says over in Ephesians 2.10 that that God has prepared even our good works beforehand that we should walk in them. He's already planned them out. He's prepared them beforehand. They're guaranteed so that we walk in them. That is a stunning vision of our obedience. Our works are prepared beforehand by God. They're a gift. They're carried out in our lives by His power, His power that's constantly at work. So my point is, Paul's point, is that that's the scope of what God is doing in us and among us. That's the project plan of the work that He's accomplishing among us. He has created our desires for righteousness. He is fueling those desires day by day. He's also carrying out those desires to fruition in real obedience Which means then, that when it comes to the relationship between God's work and our work, that it's not a 50-50 effort. I think sometimes that's the way we talk about it. We speak as though it's kind of a balance. Like, God does his part, I do our part. And (laughs) when in reality, what Paul shows us here is that at the end of the day, God's underwriting and empowering it all from the desires to the actions. And this is exactly what God said He would do in Ezekiel 36. If you want to turn there, you can or you can just listen. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-five. Just dropping in here. An interesting promise to Israel that's being, that's yet to be fulfilled in its totality. That's begun to be fulfilled right now in the present age. He says, "I will sprinkle clean water on you, verse twenty-five, and I shall cleanse us, sh- and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from." Um, and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. Who's giving the new heart? God is. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. Who, who will put the new spirit within? I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you And cause you to walk in my statutes? And cause you to be careful to obey my rules? Who's doing all that? It's God. God is doing all that. That's the promise of the new covenant. That's what we are experiencing. In part, it's not its full realization. That's coming at the return of Jesus. But it's, it's, it's broken in. The new creation is broken into the old right now. Gentiles have been able to come in and experience this right now. It's not just for Israel. God is bringing it to bear progressively even now as we speak. Now if you go back to Philippians 2, as comprehensive as that is, Paul says that God's working in us at this level should fuel our efforts to obey. In other words, the more we realize just how much God is on our side, the more we will get after obeying. That means then we've got to beware of misapplying this truth. Taking it to some kind of imbalanced logical extreme. Like statements like this. Since God's at work, my desire level, he's working on my desires, I don't need to work at all. It's just like, darn God, right? That would be a logical extreme that's not what Paul's saying here. It would go out of bounds of what this text says. Or I just need to wait on God to work, since He's the one working in me at this level so profoundly. If it's all ordained anyway, then what I what do I need to do, right? Just gonna sit there and suck on my thumb, I guess. It's not the way it works. That's not the purpose of why he's saying this. The purpose of giving you this glimpse into the sovereign work of God is to fuel our obedience. It's to tell us it can't, our our efforts won't fail. They will return with fruit. Because God's the one working. Another misapplication? I guess God isn't at work if I still desire to sin. No. God's at work even in that. Because it's progressive. He's bringing this in in a progressive way. And he's got a purpose in his mysterious providence for all of it. So it should fuel our striving. How so? Well, there's lots of ways, but I'm just going to highlight a few. We strive now from the position of hope. Does that Make sense? We strive from the position of hope. Meaning we're not striving to earn any status with God. We're not striving... Uncertain if we're going to have the victory. We're not striving even uncertain about whether we'll be able to put the sin to death. We're striving from hope that no matter how many times we fall, we will rise. That God is with us. He is on our side, fueling our obedience. Even at the desire level, He will see it through. And that fuels our effort because it's it's the firm foundation of hope. And not only do we strive from hope, but we strive with perseverance. We strive with perseverance. Indeed, having this vision of God is the only way we persevere. This enables us to continue to obey, to continue to get up, time and time again, to continue to combat those lusts, those anxieties, those fears, those discouragements, depressions, to fight it with perseverance, because we know that God is on our side, and because we know that he's at work underneath it, through it, that he's shaping our will, he has a purpose in all of it, even in the fight. So, do you see why this is such an important text? Keeps us in on the path, uh, away from those ditches. And the original answer to our original or the answer to our original question, who is responsible for our growth, God or us? The answer is yes. Right? The answer is yes. The scriptures keep us out of the ditch. It keeps us from depending all on ourselves, and it keeps us from excusing ourselves and sort of blaming God for our, our sin and, and failure. Okay? God is empowering and sustaining our effort, or to put it in the title, we are strengthened so that we can strive. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come to your word and we're consistently stunned by how clear you have been to us, by how rich, how well you shepherd us through your word. And wow what what do we say so often in these prayer times it's just it's it's stunning to think that we belong to you that you're empowering us that you're going to reward us for our obedience you're going to give us positions of honor and authority for the things that you've worked in us we are humbled to the dust thank you father for the privilege of being your people We pray that we would love each other well, and that in weeks to come we would see that as we strive for unity, as we strive to love each other well, that we will be a light in fulfillment of Daniel 12, a light to the world, and that you will use us to bring many people to righteousness, and uh, you're already doing that now, and we praise you for it, in Jesus' name.